The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of the Messages of Hope podcast. I'm used to having only one guest. A couple times I've had two guests, but this evening I have four, and one of them is a filmmaker, and three of them are experts in induced after-death communication. I'm so excited for you to meet them. We're just going to have a great conversation and help bring to your awareness a wonderful movie, a documentary called Living with Ghosts. Now, as a medium, I like to stay away from that word ghost, but you'll find out why it's in the title. In fact, I already interviewed the filmmaker, Stephen Berkeley. He's here with us this evening. Let me bring everybody in all at once and introduce you. Actually, let's start with, uh, with a big hello. Hello, everybody. And uh, greetings to all of you who are joining us live. I think that's pretty cool. If you have questions throughout this event, you can type them in the chat and we will see them and hopefully ask some of those questions as time allows. So we're live on YouTube, live on Facebook. Love using technology for this. Let's start with the filmmaker who produced Living With Ghosts. That's Stephen Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Why don't you introduce yourself to everybody, Stephen? Thank you, Suzanne. Hi, I'm I'm Steve Berkeley. Um, I produced uh, Living with Ghosts, and I hope everyone who got to see it this weekend has enjoyed it. Um, It took me seven years to make, and it was was a labor of love, I would call it. And I learned a whole lot in the making of the film because when I first started, I wasn't really sure how I felt about the topic. It really wasn't until my dad died that I started exploring. So it was really made for people like me who wasn't really sure how I felt about the existence of an afterlife. So that's how it all started. And um, that's how I got to meet the other panelists because some one of the subjects in my film wanted to do a particular therapy that's featured in the film. And these are the experts that I got to meet. Jan Holden, who is the uh, is a professor and the president of International Association for Near Death Studies, and a pro- pro- professor emerita emerita, emerita. At the University of North Texas, uh, was the director of the study on induced after death communication therapy, and Graham Maxey, who was the I guess the the lead therapist on, in the field, actually training the other therapists and administering the therapy. And I, Graham, I would say, is probably the lead expert in the film. And Noelle St. Germain's hair uh, was in the film briefly, but she is the president of the um, induced after death communication therapy. And so I thought that was an important person to have here as well as in the film. Well, you just did a great job of introducing everyone for us, Steve. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I just. I'm thrilled to have everybody here. And I want to say that as a medium, it's my job to be the voice for those who no longer have a physical voice. But what you all are showing the world is you don't need a medium. And I think that's fantastic. Uh, I wish we didn't need mediums. I want people to know that you can communicate directly with your loved ones who have passed, have that real experience of that. And that's what you show so beautifully in the film. Let's just jump right into that and one of our experts here just talk about how what is induced after death communication compared with af- 
would you call it spontaneous after death communications? Mm -hmm. So who wants to grab that one? Well, um, you've, I think you've actually captured it because spontaneous ADC, which is the, um, the experience that has been most uh, reported and has been researched uh, very uh, extensively over the last hundred plus years. And, uh, and it does happen spontaneously. Uh, it, whether or not a person would like to have communication with their discarnate, um, with their deceased loved one, um, uh, the experience happens essentially unexpectedly and unintentionally. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, research, I mean, there's just a lot to say about spontaneous after death communication that can take different forms. And, uh, but the important thing is that we know that it's, uh, almost always very healing for people and uh, helping to reduce um, the the pain of grief. Uh, doesn't eliminate it completely, but certainly helps. And, um, and then induced after death communication is this very special um, counseling technique that uh, is designed to facilitate people to have the experience of after death communication during a counseling session, and that's not all that happens in the session, but uh, but that's um, part of the intention. What I love and what I'm hearing here, and just to make sure everybody understands this, is spontaneous after death communication (ADC). Who wouldn't want that? We would pray for that. But with induced ADC, you go to this session. That's your intention, and you hope to come out of there with that experience. Now in the documentary, Living with Ghosts, you showed that you have you have great success with that. Would, Graham or Noel, would you like to talk about the success level of these experiences? It's, um, it's quite remarkable, but uh, my, my statistics that I've kept over the years since I started this in 26, 2006, uh, it's been about 92% of the clients uh, have had uh, an after-death communication either in the session or very closely afterwards. Um, and one of the things that Dr. Botkin uh, put in his book, which is how most people get introduced to this uh, uh, technique, is that all all after-death communications are spontaneous. We're not inducing anyone to have them. What we're doing is putting you in a mental state where you can no notice it. Huh. You know, uh, this is not something we're doing. Um, you know, the the idea is that people aren't going to walk in and just talk to random spirits. <laughs> you know, you have to have connection with this person, and you have to have a need to hear from them. So um, that sounds like what I teach in my classes. I teach people how to connect with their loved ones. Can, after a session with you, can people leave and do it themselves? Exactly. Uh, when, when I was trained by Dr. Botkin, I went up there. I had to be my own subject because I couldn't talk anybody else to flying to Chicago with me, uh, who was a client. And I had an experience uh, with my daughter, who I never met, who was uh, not born, but she was... Uh, 23 years old when I met her. And um, we spent the evening after I left Dr. Bodkin's office talking. And that uh, was quite healing, quite amazing. But yes, it's, it's not, a, it, the title has always bothered me. It's not an induced situation. We're not doing this to anybody, you know. Um, as one of the spirits said in Bodkin's book, he said, you know, what do you think about IADC? He says, oh, it's great. But remember, we're in charge of it, not you. And that's very true. That is such a good point that I wasn't even aware of. So that's really good to make. And Noel, how did you get into this work and work your way up to, what is your title, president? I'm the executive director of the International Induced After Death Communication Board and uh, Center for Grief and Traumatic Loss. And basically, um, Dr. Al Botkin, who Graham just mentioned, um, discovered this um, 
this technique and then refined it over time. And he started this um, protocol, which he called induced after death communication, IADC. Um, and when Al retired, he asked me if I would take over, um, you know, as executive director, basically. So we have a centralized location for information and referrals and things of that nature. Um, so I first got involved with this um, when I learned about IADC um, through my own personal therapy. That's that's really how I discovered it. My therapist was trained by Al. Um, and she was a former student of, of Jan's. And that's how I first heard of it. And um, once I experienced it, I became very intrigued. And I've always had um, uh, after-death communication in my life through my family history. Um, so it wasn't strange to me or out of the ordinary, but to see it as a therapeutic intervention that was new. Um, so I approached Jan and asked her, she and I actually talked together um, to uh, set up the study at UNT that we did. It took us four years to do this study from uh, conception to completion. And, um, you know, uh, that was, um, so that was a big part of it for me um, was getting involved um, in the research um, and then getting trained myself to um, to facilitate the the uh, the therapeutic uh, modality. So and that that leads right into the answer to a question from a listener right now that I have yes. up on the screen. I was mm -hmm. under the impression this therapy should be done under the care of a licensed therapist, and yet we're saying that anybody can learn to do it. So how do we well? Actually, no, it does need to be done by a licensed therapist. And so um, individuals, I'm a licensed professional counselor and um, 30 years experience. And um, we definitely, definitely um, restrict this practice. It is a therapeutic modality. And like any therapeutic modality in a mental health field, it needs to be somewhat regulated. And so we do require that individuals who are engaging in um, learning how to do this are licensed mental health professionals, that they do um, fall under, um, they do understand the basics of mental health counseling, because you can have experiences in any uh, mental health context where someone might have a distressing experience or um, need some extra support. Um, we're dealing with people who have pretty severe grief at times, um, many of whom have traumatic histories. And like any um, any difficult experience um, in counseling, you don't always know what's going to emerge. And so uh, you have to have someone who's trained to manage anything that might uh, come up for a person who's also, also to screen the applicants as clients, because there are some count contraindications for people. Uh, we're not going to take everyone as a client, uh, depending on their mental health history. And so we need somebody who's trained to kind of understand what that history is and, and make sure that this is a safe procedure for people. I did see a, I did see a question up there that said, um, two, two questions. One of them said, what about EMDR? Uh, and that's a big part of the story, actually. I movement Explain briefly what that is to people that would help. Yes, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing is a psychophysiological technique um, Basically, it's, it, it involves bilateral stimulation. Um, uh, it's, it, it started out as eye movement, which is you follow a pointer or a finger side to side without moving your head while you're concentrating on a particular problem. And the EMDR protocol is quite strict. There's like eight different uh, points to it. Um, and, but it's very effective, particularly for trauma. And um, uh, what Dr. Botkin did was modify it to some degree and say, we're not going to start with the symptom. We're going to start with the story. We're going to start with you telling the story of the deceased person, your relationship to them. And we're going to try to find the apex of that sadness. And we're not going to deal with anger. We're not going to deal with um, uh, guilt because his most amazing discovery, I think, was that sadness was the engine that drives both of them. Wow. And you can spend the rest of your life trying to bail out the guilt and bail out the anger. And if you never get to the sadness, it's not going to work. Wow. That's an important point. It is a Nobel Prize 
worthy discovery in my opinion. But uh, the somebody else asked about tapping. Um, that was kind of my doing. Um, is I, I found I got nauseous while I was doing this with people. But I also started working with a lot of blind people. And uh, so you can't do that. So we do tapping. We put their hands on their knees and tap the backs of their hands rhythmically, alternately, as a, as a way of doing this. And now since we've been doing um, a lot of virtual sessions uh, since the pandemic, uh, we have people do it themselves. We have people wow. do their own tapping kind of under direction. So it's, it does not have anything to do with um, um, anything but EMDR at this point, uh, the, the bilateral simulation part. Interesting. Stephen, you got into this out of your own personal curiosity, and now you're helping to change the world and the views about the afterlife. Uh, what has this project taught you? How's it changed things for you and the world? Well, I, I love to say that I take responsibility for the way the world is changing. I don't know if I can take responsibility for that quite yet, but the way it's changed me, like what I was saying before, I was very much on the fence. I wasn't really sure how I felt about afterlife anything, but when I started studying, doing the research and talking to people, talking to experts and finding out that there are some real serious scientists studying these phenomena and they're coming up with very interesting results. And once I became familiar with that, I was no longer embarrassed to share with people that I'm a believer, but it, I wouldn't have even known that I didn't have to be embarrassed if I knew that there was there were these serious scientists studying these phenomena and coming up with these very, very cool answers. Yeah, awesome. I love that answer. Jan, Dr. Holden, you're now the president of the International Association of Near-Death Experiences, Near-Death Studies, mm -hmm. and that's quite different from after-death communication from people who have passed. Mm -hmm. You, is there a reason these are two are linked together for you? Is it, a, is it an overarching interest in the greater reality? Definitely. Well, I, I began uh, my uh, professional career uh, over 30 years ago <clears throat> and started with, excuse me, <clears throat> started uh, with studying near-death experiences. Well, in near-death experiences, people often have after-death communication. They meet deceased loved ones and communicate with them. And it's often a deceased loved one who tells them, it's not your time, you have to go back. Um, but in the meantime, the connection is just so um, gratifying for people. They, they see their deceased loved one in the prime of life typically, and, uh, and sometimes have really extensive communication with them during the experience, no matter how long the actual physical near-death episode was, the subjective experience can be a lot longer than, than the physical time. So, um, so that uh, studying NDEs led me very naturally into after-death communication. And there are a lot of similarities in terms of, these are both transpersonal experiences, NDEs and ADC. They're, they're experiences that transcend the usual personal limits of space, time, identity, and influence. And as such, uh, people who have them in our culture uh, tend to be looked on askance. And so uh, the, the research that findings we have about near-death experiences seem to apply almost e the same to after-death communication. For example, we know that both NDEs and ADC are essentially equal opportunity experiences. Uh, anybody and everybody, every type of person has had the experience, no matter your demographics, your belief system, um, and or anything you can think of, uh, everybody is um, a potential experiencer. We know that these experiences are not related to mental disorder. 
And we know that they uh, result in psycho-spiritual development. So they're not uh, like evil, you know, spiritually evil. Um, and so, uh, so those are those are all important um, facts to know about both types of experience. I love that you brought that up, and I can't help but see Noelle nodding her head vigorously. <laughs> in reading your biography, your research focuses on improving mental health providers' effectiveness in addressing transpersonal issues. And that's exactly what you're talking about. How how are you doing with that? And explain more in detail for those who are joining us now. Sure. What the issue is. Well, one of the main issues, and, and Stephen's film does a beautiful job of kind of depicting um, the the way in which these experiences can often be stigmatized by mental health professionals, by religious leaders, um, by other other family members and friends who don't understand what these experiences are. So as Jan was saying, um, there are many different types of transpersonal experiences, um, ADC and NDE being um, two very common ones. Um, and with after-death communication experiences, near-death experiences, oftentimes when someone presents that to a mental health professional, to a doctor, a nurse, an individual who may or may not have awareness of these experiences, they can default to what they know, which is usually following a diagnostic lens and looking at it in terms of some type of hallucinatory experience or um, some type of pathological experience. Um, so what my work is about um, is, and, and I know Jan and I have worked together um, doing numerous presentations. We do a lot of presentations at professional conferences for other mental health professionals. Um, Jan has also um, set up through IN symposia of various um, professionals from different disciplines, interdisciplinary panels. Um, and so a lot of what I do is trying to, to get the word out, whether it be through professional presentations. I'm also um, a clinical associate professor at William & Mary. And so I teach a course on transpersonal counseling. So all the students going through our program learn about what these experiences are and how to effectively help clients um, with integrating these experiences. And that's something I want to mention about the um, IADC protocol um, that's really, really important. And for anyone who has these spontaneous experiences as well, after having an experience of a transpersonal nature, it's extremely helpful to work with someone to integrate that experience and make meaning out of that experience. Otherwise, we can dismiss it or think, oh, I, that was a weird thing that happened, but we don't really get the full benefit of the transformative power of it unless we take the time to kind of explore the meaning of that for us and really um, integrate it into our lives in a meaningful way. Um, so that's another area um, for me. I've got a certification from the American Center for the Integration of Spiritually Transformative Experiences. It's called ASSIST. And, um, and that, that certification, that training that actually Jan provided really helps um, helped me develop um, the ability as a mental health professional to work with people to integrate these experiences in a meaningful way. Wonderful. And we'll be sure that in the description of this event on YouTube live, right under the video, we'll put all of your, your full names and your titles and your degrees and your contact information so people can find out more. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. So what I was most impressed with the film, and by the way, any of you reading through the comments, Steve, I hope you're gratified. People love the movie. I hope you're seeing that. And they loved your mother. But what I was uh, just stunned to find out when I interviewed you previously on the podcast was these were not reenactments. You followed this family around for seven years, didn't know the, what the outcome would be. You, you were in on the therapy sessions. You see our other three guests who are with us now in the film, all live, not knowing how it would come out. That was 
pretty uh, gutsy. I was pretty nervous, and <laughs> I mean, it, it could have. I mean, no, I, but no matter how it went, I, I knew I was going to be happy with the reality of what was happening because it, it, it felt real. I mean, I know people people asked me still, was it were these rec recreations? And I know that I know they're not recreations, and I'm hoping that people, when people see it, they can kind of get the feel of the film that these are real people having real emotional, impactful moments. But by the way, Suzanne, because of your interview, I went ahead and put in the very beginning of the film that these are not recreations. Oh, so now when people see the film, it's- Oh, it's I'm glad you did that. So there are people asking, can we still see the film? You bet. How do they see it? Yes, it's probably time to flash that banner up on the screen. But is that the correct- uh... Well, I, 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 in the private chat, I put the exact- the exact URL. But I didn't have time to see that, Stephen. I'm working all these. Oh, it's, it's also in the comments section that are flashing, flashing right now on the screen mm -hmm. under Lynette's name. It's there. Yeah. And you can find it there. Well, and why don't you just tell us what it is and how people can. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I botched this whole thing. <laughs> so the, the URL is livingwithghostsmovie.com. That's the book basically the website, livingwithghostsmovie.com forward slash landing hope as messages of hope. Um, okay. Landing hope is the oh. whole URL. So what does what happens when people go there? They see the whole film or what? That's the event page. They'll see you, Suzanne, first because there's a little excerpt of from your, your interview of me basically saying, Hi, Steve. Introduce yourself to my audience. <laughs> this is Steve Berkeley. So there's the, the first two minutes of your interview of me is the first thing they see. And there's an opportunity for them to click a button. If they want to see the film, they click a button and they could they could go on and they could they could donate and see it. OK, so do I have that right now in the banner that you're seeing? That that looks right. It looked right to me before. <laughs> it looks right to me now. But for some reason, it didn't work before. OK, now let's talk about this donation button. Right. What is the goal with that? So there are there are two different versions. Well, there's two there's two videos. One video is a is a fairly short, like a ten minute um, introduction to the movie. Basically, it's a sh it's a short movie, but there's enough information in there so people can really get a feel for what the movie's about. It basically talks about IADC and introduces the main characters of the film. So. It's not a trailer. It's longer than a trailer. It's like it's 10 minutes and you get a really, a really good feel for what the story is. But that's available free, of course. And if you see that and you want to watch the rest of the movie for a very a minute, a small donation, you can go on and, and watch the full film. Now, I have like four different donation tiers and you get a little bit more depending on how much you're willing to donate. So the minimum donation is $15 and that gets you a week with the movie. And if you go up to $25, it gives you a week, a two weeks with the movie, plus like five extra hours of raw interview footage with the main experts from the film. And then there's two other tiers at higher levels, but it gives a lot of options for both donations and, and ancillary footage that you can view. But the goal, again, is to be able to get this onto PBS for anybody. That, that's why we're raising money. This is why this is a fundraiser. We're raising money to get this film onto PBS because making a film for PBS isn't what I thought it was. It's not free. <laughs> Filmmakers have to make a version just for PBS and it requires certain requirements to be met. So that's going to be pricey. And that's why I'm basically trying to raise money for this purpose. Very good. Excellent. So we have a question here. I'll show this on the screen. Do any of you suggest automatic writing or other techniques as a way to improve our connection and or enhance individual gifts? I have an answer for that. I want to hear what our ADC experts had to say. Who wants to take this one? Well, I, I you know, uh, always ask people at the conclusion of our sessions, and we they're very brief. They're, you know, two 90-minute sessions. Uh, and that's really all we need. But I said, part of this is, you know, your connection with that person. And you need to have a time to do that. 
Um, and my suggestion is that you use journaling uh, in, in what, you know, Stephen's film calls automatic writing, um, but it's uh, proven over and over again, not just in our context, but in so many other contexts that when you sit down uh, in a disciplined way, kind of at a certain time and a certain place even, if you can, uh, and start having conversation. It's like any other relationship, you know, you have to give time uh, and attention to it or it kind of floats away in your, in your consciousness. Um, one of the, you know, I had to miss one of, of Stephen's uh, events here uh, a couple of weeks ago because my wife and I had to take a trip to uh, her parents' property. And that was onerous and it was difficult. But one of the great things we got was six hours in the car talking to each other that wasn't interrupted. And that's really what you can have with people after death, too. It does not take um, oxygen. It does not take uh, corporal uh, presence to have that kind of conversation and meaningful conversation. Um, and um, yeah, they are here. Your loved ones who have passed are as close as your breath. They're right here in consciousness. If you set up an appointment with them, say, let's get together Wednesday and have a chat, they will show up. It sounds silly, doesn't it? But that's just the way it it's, works. It's not silly. I mean, you do that with any of the other people that you love, you know, that's who, right. are, who are right here in the house with you. And if you don't have an appointment, sometimes you don't get to talk to them because they're busy. You know? That's right. So, so many people might say, well, how do you know it's not your imagination? I'd love to hear from Jan. It is your imagination. That's the point. <laughs> okay, you don't have it. any other medium in your body that lets you see things that are not physically in front of you. But that doesn't mean it's not real. Oh, I love that. It's like, you know, your television set. It has many channels and some of them are pure fantasy. You, you kind of know that. And then some no, of them are on at this moment. So it, you know, having an imagination is kind of a prerequisite to having an after-death communication. There are, uh, you know, people that I have run into that have a condition called aphantasia, mm -hmm. which they cannot, uh, their brain does not let them picture things that are not seen. And that's a disability. That's not uh, normal. That's something that people have to overcome. Well, so let me rephrase that because I've heard this question multiple ways. I'd love to hear Jen and Noel answer this as well. They say, how do I know I'm not making it up? Right. Andy, okay, because I think we're going to say the same thing. Um, one of the things that we know with experiences of after-death communication and with near-death experience, but, but in after-death communication, you know, one of the questions in the chat that I saw was, does everybody have a visual experience? And I'm, I'm, I'm getting to your point, Suzanne, but I'm kind of going around about ways okay. it's connected. Um, so no, not everyone has the same kind of experience in an after-death communication. Some people might have just a, a sense of presence. I feel the person with me. Some people might have a visual um, experience or an auditory experience, an olfactory experience where they smell perfume or cigarette smoke or something familiar from that, that person. They may have a sensory-based experience or they may have some other kind of experience. Um, they may, uh, some people have gotten like emails, phone calls, or other kinds of electronic communication from a deceased loved one. So you can have any kind of experience, but one of the most common is um, what we call a sleep ADC, which occurs when someone is asleep. And it's differentiated from a dream about the person in that dreams are often very fleeting. Um, oftentimes um, you wake up and they start dissipating very soon after waking. And um, they don't necessarily have a, a really strong kind of after um, effect. Whereas people that have a sleep ADC report that these are more real than a regular dream. They also report remembering them or retaining it for a long period of time and feeling that it is um, a real experience that is qualitatively different 
from a dream experience. So um, they feel oftentimes a sense of peace, closure, or some of those healing after effects that Jan was talking about earlier after having that sleep ADC, whereas just having a dream about the person, they don't necessarily feel that shift in, in that sense of connection and that, that um, shift in their grief experience. So um, there's, it, it's hard to um, describe, but the research shows repeatedly that people describe after-death communication experiences as distinctly different than something that they just imagined a conversation with the person. So I know Graham was talking about kind of needing to kind of have imagination as part of the process, but it is a distinctly different experience than um, uh, than thinking about what the person would say to you. So, and also, you know, like Suzanne, you always ask for evidence from your um, um, discarnates so that the sitter knows that this is uh, this is for real. And it's possible to do that with ABC too. And and also just to be open to evidence that's being offered. Um, when when I trained in ABC in IADC, excuse me, I did it with um, three of my students and we came to, this is my home office and we came here on a weekly basis afterwards and practiced on each other. And in one session that where I was the client and I was trying to connect with my uh, discarnate cousin who died right after the Vietnam War, uh, in the middle of the experience, his father, my uncle, who had died just uh, just a couple of years before this, uh, we were doing the uh, the IADC. He literally elbowed his way in front of my cousin and showed me something that made no sense to me. But I, but he made it quite clear that he wanted me to call his wife, who was still alive, and tell her that I had that he had shown me this. And so much longer story, much shorter, I did end up calling her. We, uh, she knew exactly what it was, exactly why he had shown that. And she ended the conversation saying, nothing you could have told me would convince me more that he's waiting for me. So, so when those kinds of things happen, this is, this is not something I could have imagined or reasoned out or i mean it just made no sense to me whatsoever until she heard it and made sense of it and then in another session when when i was i was leading i was the counselor for one of my students and we were sitting right behind me and uh she was connecting with her uh, discarnate sister and at the end of after we had finished we do a little talking debrief kind of thing and she made the comment that uh, it's like a door had opened in her relationship with her sister. And within 30 seconds of her saying that, the door behind me popped open and gradually did like this, which is not how it functions. If we had more time, I'd show you. But anyway, you can just trust me that it's in, in I've lived in this house for more than 25 years. It's the only time the door has ever popped open on its own. Oh, I love it. And so, so those kinds of things can happen <clears throat> that are very convincing to people. There's also, there's also this uh, small but, but pretty meaningful ex experience that IDC therapists have. I've had one where we shared the same vision. Oh, wow. Um, I was talking with uh, one client who was talking with his grandfather and I was seeing the same scene. I described it to him. He said, you're sitting in the old uh, Turnpike Stadium talking to your grandfather in a concourse that's right in behind, a, right, right in front of a, of a walkway. Yes. Um, I said, there's another man sitting in the next section right behind you. I think he's your father. And he said, I don't want to see him. Hmm. Um, he didn't make that up, and I didn't make that up. <laughs> that just it pronounced itself. That just happened. That's that shared field of consciousness that you created during that session. Beautiful. It, it has been reported by many uh, IADC therapists. Wow. 
So you four, have you done multiple of these screening events for different groups, Steve? Yes, we have. We, we've done we've done quite a few, and um, you know, one one thing that keeps coming up over and over again. I'm not sure. I don't think we addressed it tonight. A lot of people ask, well, what if I after the IEDC session, I want to continue having these moments with my deceased loved one? What what happens then? So, any of you want to answer that question? Once you know the way, you know the way. You don't have to, you know, what IEDC does is put you in the mental spot where your sadness, where the grief of that, uh, what feels like an abandonment for most people. You know, I am just bereft. Uh, my analogy has always been, you know, if you tell somebody to go out and look at the stars and it's 12 o'clock noon, they're going to have a hard time finding Betelgeuse because there's this big blazing ball of incandescent gas up there in the sky that makes the two. It, it's so glaring. Uh, you know, you have to wait till the sun goes down to see the stars. That's really what this technique does. Uh, people who have dragged themselves up the steps to my office in this profound sadness, uh, 90 minutes later, they kind of float away. Uh, because that sadness has gone. And it's in that space that you can notice the subtle communication that after death communication is. This isn't in your face. This isn't neon lights and, you know, show production. Uh, this is, this is, uh, we're here. Uh, you know, the, the last after death communication I had spontaneously was from my mother-in-law who passed. And I woke up um, one morning and uh, what I pictured in my head, I know I was awake because I was scratching myself. And uh, all of a sudden in my awareness, I saw a text message on a phone, which I wasn't holding in my hand. And uh, it said, we're here, we're together, love to hear from you. And um, that was, you know, about as prof profound as you could get, but it wasn't a big, you know, showpiece. It wasn't, you know, bells and whistles and noise and stuff. It was just a text message. Uh, and so that that's really what IEDC does, is set the stage for how you get to the point where you can notice what's already going on. You know, all after-death communication is spontaneous. It is not produced it's not manufactured and uh, so that's what we do yeah a lot of it is about um, creating space and um, getting getting some of those intense feelings out of the way and one thing I do want to mention with IADC as a as a therapeutic technique is what we found in the study and I know what Al has found in his work um, many years before we did the study and I know Graham's experienced this is when you have clients who come into a session and they're they're grasping at I, I have to communicate with my deceased loved one I just I need to see them the grasping is actually what creates or inhibits uh, the ability to connect. So part of what we um, encouraged clients to do was to let go of expectation but um, and pay attention to the subtle, as Graham said, it's very subtle. Pay attention to the just being open to whatever awareness is there. This and, is such a good point. I just have to interrupt you, Noel, because yeah. as a medium and a teacher of mediumship, I, this is what I tell my students all the time. They're trying. You can't try. You have to relax yes. and, and just allow it to happen and be able to receive. And it's very challenging not to have expectations. But that word grasping, I've never yes. used. It never came to my awareness, but it's the perfect word. And that's what yes. everybody's trying. I have to do this. What am I doing right. wrong? Right. Right. And it's about being receptive, open and receptive to what comes rather than trying to reach and, and make something happen. We, you know, the trying too hard and the, the grasping at and, and an experience that you want to have um, that can can impede the process, as you know, as as a medium. Oh, yeah. Today I did a session and I had a, a man's uh, 
girlfriend, partner, and she told us something that he had just done, a current event. He said, she knows what I'm doing? Have her tell me another one. And so then I tried and we didn't get it right. And it's, right. It's, if people just learn that it doesn't work yes. that way when you're right. dealing with discarnate people, you know. Mm -hmm. right. So how, how do you not try hard? You trust you, that what they can get through will come through exactly. and you just relax and receive. Mm -hmm. It's a, a process of inviting and then being uh, centered, open and um, and receptive mm -hmm. and and just uh, attentive to anything <clears throat> that happens at any level. It could be an image, a visual image, an auditory image. It could be something tactile. It could be a, an emotional sense. Um, so uh, it just the or it could be something um, symbolic that happens after you've actually uh, been focused on it, where you then walk into the next room and find something uh, that has materialized there. Uh, that you know wasn't there before and has particular significance to you. So, uh, so it's just about being open to however um, your uh, discarnate loved one can communicate with you. It's it's a real practice in letting go of attachment. <laughs> yeah. Sure is. yeah. A lot of people are asking how they can get IADC if they want it, and maybe you could talk about that, Noelle. Yeah. In fact, um, I can. Put into the private chat here um, for you, um, Suzanne, the link to the page um, for um, the IADC. I'll tell uh, you, you're going to have to send it to our wonderful Lynette later because I don't know how to access. Oh, there's private chat over there. But no worries. It to Lynette, we'll make sure it gets out there. Absolutely will. I'll be happy to do that. Um, but in that, on that website, there is a page um, called Trained Therapist Directory. And on that trained therapist directory, you can search for therapists who are trained in IADC in your area. Um, one of the things to mention is that we don't have trained therapists in every state in the United States. And one thing about um, mental health uh, services is that you can only provide mental health services in the state that you're licensed to provide services. So that is one of the, um, one of the, the drawbacks in terms of, of this trying to find a therapist is that we may not have someone licensed in the state in which people live. And we have viewers, listeners from around the world. I'm so grateful yes. for that. So is this becoming more well-known internationally? That's question number one. And number two, if somebody's in a foreign country, can they have a, an online session with a trained therapist in the United States? Well, the good news is we have therapists all over the world. And Graham, do you want to speak a little more about that? Well, I, I know there's a bunch of them in Germany because I trained a bunch of them in Germany and so did Al. And uh, we have a, a, a bunch of them in Italy. We have some Italy and France. In mm -hmm. France. Uh, I don't think we have any in the in UK at the moment, which is quite odd in my opinion. Uh, but there's there's some in Australia. There's some in uh, there's one at least one in South Korea that I know of, and uh, a few others. But uh, basically, Western Europe is pretty well covered at this point. Mm -hmm. um, Very good. And uh, I think what's really going to happen in the future, and is happening right now, uh, I'm seeing people from all over the state of Texas that are not live, living in Arlington like I am. Uh, they don't have to come to my office. We're doing this virtually. And um, I'm going to be licensed. I, actually, I'm already licensed not only in Texas, but in Pennsylvania. And I'm going to pick up a couple of more licenses on some other states soon. So uh, I it's think a, it's a phenomenon where when all of you watching now see this film, Living with Ghosts, you can't help but be interested and know somebody who could benefit from this. It's one of these things where you think, why doesn't everybody know about this? And Stephen, your wonderful film is helping people to get to know it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I want to get it on PBS yeah. so people pay the $15 at least. You get to watch the film and you help to ensure that it gets onto public broadcasting so that more people see it. So let me you know, when, I, when I asked, when I met Al Botkin for the first time, the first question I asked him was, why isn't this front page news 
every day. Why doesn't everyone know about this? And he was the first to admit that he's not a marketer. He doesn't really know much about how to get the word out. And he didn't want, he wanted to make sure he didn't cheapen the therapy in his attempts to get the word out. But luckily I found him and I, I'm, I'm, trying to do, I'm trying to do what he didn't do, is just get it out there. Yeah, he was he was a one man shop for years and years and years, and and he was doing the therapy. He didn't he didn't have time to do marketing. He didn't have time to do anything else. Um, I think I was the first person that he actually uh, put put said, "Hey, why don't you do something official?" So he made me you know <laughs> clinical director for IADC in 2006, and and I'm in the same boat. You know, I'm doing therapy. I'm Working, I don't have time to do the marketing and stuff. But a therapy that's over ninety percent effective, yeah, right, and almost instantaneous healing. It's mm -hmm. remarkable. No drugs, no right? drug. No, <laughs> I don't take any drugs either. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but Suzanne, this is part of the issue that you know, um, like the website. If anybody goes to the website, it's not it's not current right now because um, you know when Al asked me to take over two years ago. Um, as I explained, you know, I'm a full-time college professor with a private practice and I don't have a lot of time. It's been very hard, I think, in the field of IADC to really be able to get it the visibility it deserves and to um, get it out there. So um, I think it's really wonderful what you're doing, what Stephen's doing. And, um, you know, the more we can continue to communicate about this, the more we can help professionals understand that this is a legitimate therapeutic intervention. I think that's the other issue is there's a lot of skepticism in the field of mental health about legitimacy and evidence-based treatment. And you have to do a lot of um, you have to do a lot of research studies to show that something is evidence-based and before it's accepted as a form of treatment, a legitimate form of treatment. EMDR went through a lot of years of people being very skeptical about it before it became what it is today in terms of an evidence-based treatment that's utilized um, you know, in government, with the government. Huh. So um, it took a long time for that to happen. And so with something like IADC, it really requires um, continual research um, to show its efficacy as a mental health treatment in order for it to be accepted in um, mainstream mental health. And uh, I see a question about training. If any of the people in the audience are licensed mental health professionals, um, you can get trained actually by uh, Graham. Uh, I think Graham is doing um, uh, distance, you know, virtual. Yeah, we're doing virtual, yeah. Training, yeah, and it's, it's essentially one, uh, like two weekends in a row, something like yeah. that. Yeah, well, we're, we're actually doing um, basically Saturday, Sunday. The next one I'm doing is uh, early in June, and, and um, we're, we're doing Saturday, Sunday, like like they were, like you did, uh, Noel, when you came to my office. You know, we just do the same procedure, only we uh, uh, don't meet together, you know. So that's another thing. The training is not years long. It, no. is not. it is not. And, and for years and years, we had, um, you know, Alan insisted that people have at least uh, the first course of EMDR training, which I think was just basically a, uh, let him know that this was a licensed person and that they were trainable. <laughs> but, um, you know, what we found, what Noel and I have found and others uh, in, in Europe have found is that we can kind of do the basics of bilateral stimulation uh, training uh, within the context of doing IDC training too. So it, it's it's pretty compact. And well, I see some folks in the chat who are interested, so you might get some sign-ups and we're meeting okay. the goal of increasing okay. awareness about this uh, induced after the communication, more awareness about the the documentary Living with Ghosts, which is not about, it's not a ghost movie, it's about overcoming grief through these practices, right, Stephen? That's exactly right, yes. Yeah. So is there anything else we haven't talked about that we need to do before we sign off for the evening? Well, I saw a question about... Uh, of what asking Stephen to follow up with people from the film like what are what are they doing now I don't know if you want to focus on that for our last few minutes or not I hear it 
Um, you know, I, I, I do keep in touch with, with Karen and her family, not every day, but um, I was saying to Suzanne during my interview on her show that they decided to take their privacy back after principal photography ended. So they're not willing to do a, another interview, like where are they now kind of interview, but they're all doing very well. Um, Karen lives with her two adult siblings. Um, they're, all, they're all single. Um, and they're, she's happy. She's a happy person. She's content living with her husband, who she considers a, a lives lives elsewhere. He's an oh, he lives I, I just love that that was not recreated. You could see the sadness in her face. It just dragged her face down yeah. at the end of the this film. She is a happy person. This gives all of us hope. This is the Messages of Hope podcast, and all of you are helping to do that for me. As, as she said, it's a happy thing not to be sad. That was a great, was a great line. Graham, that was your favorite line of the film, wasn't it? It was. It was absolutely the perfect ending to the film. Happy not to be sad. Stephen, I wonder, too, I've seen I've seen a couple of people ask about the use of the word ghost, and I know in the title, and I know you you have addressed that before. Yes. I'm wondering if you want to speak to that, too. Oh, I'd love to. Suzanne, okay with you if I address well, I that? I want you to, because I don't, okay. as a medium, I don't like to talk about ghosts. Okay, so ghosts as a word with multiple connotations, you know, figurative and literal, metaphorical. And so here we have all widows in the film. Some are literally having a relationship with their husbands who is in, I guess, an energetic form. And some are just missing or, be, or feeling haunted by the memory of their late husband because they're, they're very sad and they, they see pictures of their late husband and they just, they wanna know how they're gonna go on without him. So the word applies to everyone in the film. And so that's why I liked it. I also liked it because the mainstream word, and this is supposed to be a mainstream movie. I wanted to use a word that the protagonist herself, who's a skeptic, she would use the word ghost to describe these images in her house if there was one. So it, it works on, on, on several levels. Lastly, um, it's a kind of a grabby title. You know, people do stop and they look and they, they, they're curious. So I think this is a, the best title to get the most people to see the film. And that's my number one objective is whether or not they love the title or not, if it gets them curious and it gets them to see the film, then I've, I've met my goal. Well, good. I just hope that it doesn't. My goal was that it didn't turn people away because they thought it was a scary film. Well, that's why I have you, Suzanne. You'll explain <laughs> to people that it's not a scary film. Well, I was talking with Lynette as she was helping me prepare for this evening. I said, we don't want to focus on that word ghost. We're going to talk about ABCs and we're going to get them to watch the film because it's so outstanding. I, I just love that you followed these people around for all those years and they let you in their homes, into their lives, and we saw them heal. It's just beautiful. It gives you know, them all hope once again. You know, to your point, if I had called the movie Living with Spirits, which a lot of people would prefer, I'm sure, I would lose a lot of interested people who are in the mainstream, who don't, who don't, aren't interested in anything spiritual. So well, I'm really trying to capture a big know, swath of the population with that word. Yeah, and you might have made another mistake. I have a class of mediumship. It's making the connection. I, I, when I teach it in person, it's called serving spirit. And I had uh, one person think it was a class for bartenders. <laughs> 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 so you got to be careful in the word of what, what you choose. Yeah. <laughs> See, the, this, this uh, screening period for this group uh, that was focused on this evening, when does that end? Well, it's supposed to close on Monday at midnight. So okay. I guess technically that's Tuesday morning at 12 a.m. But I have a feeling that because I've gotten a lot of emails from people asking me just to leave the window open. Please. So I might leave it linger a little bit. So so Why people have a chance. If people are going to donate. Oh, that, that's a good point. But it's also because, well, it has to do with uh, somebody, yep. an advisor I'm working with who tells me how to how to how to distribute a film. There's certain windows of distribution. So I'm trying to go by what he's saying, but I, I think we could probably leave without, without insulting or hurting anybody. I'm sure we could probably leave it available a little bit longer than I initially planned. And I will tell you that you set a, a monetary goal to help get this on PBS for this Messages of Hope group, the special yes. Messages of Hope screening. And before we started this live broadcast, you were halfway to the goal already. 
Yes. So now there. we are holding the vision that we will exceed the full goal. Oh, that'd be awesome. So I know we have such an enthusiastic group and a very targeted group because the people who come to the Messages of Hope podcast, they want to learn how to connect with their people. Who have yeah. And you all have given us such a beautiful, such beautiful insights that this is possible, that it doesn't, it may begin with a therapist, but that this is something that we can all experience. And this yeah. is what I've known for years. And we have the, the experts in this field to share with us. So thank you all for coming on this evening. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. It was a pleasure. Everybody, you got the URL there. Go watch the movie. Make a donation to watch the whole thing and support letting more people around the world know that this reality where our loved ones are after they pass is very real. Okay. Have we, have we ever said anything about the IADC website? It's, it's very uh, short. Did you give that, Noel? You can, you can give it, Graham. Go ahead. It's uh, www.inducedadc.com. Okay. Induced dash. Yes. It, it works either way. It oh, works. it works either way. Okay. Okay. Great. Very good. Lots of great info. Thank you for all for coming out on when, if you're live with us a Sunday evening, but somewhere in the world, it's not evening, whatever the case, you're here for a reason. I hope what you heard really helps you. We send everybody lots of love and healing. And again, gratitude for our guests this evening. Thank you, Suzanne. All right. You're yeah, welcome. Thank you. Okay. Oh, are we out? I think we're out. Yeah. Do you ever feel that calling that you should be doing more with your life? If you're unhappy with the status quo, I can help. My name is Elias Patras, and I'm an intuitive motivator, psychic medium, and motivational speaker. I know that feeling, and on my podcast, Your Inner Voice, I can help you answer that call to step into your life's purpose. I will show you how to recognize and listen to the signs and signals that are all around us and help you tap into your intuition. Join me for the show here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and wherever you get your podcasts. Let's connect, educate, and grow on this journey together.